1979, ACDC released its sixth studio album, Highway to Hell. Robert John Muttlang produced the record, making the band sound more catchy and accessible to international audiences, and it became their first platinum album in the United States, selling over one million copies. So as the new decade approached, ACDC set off for the UK and France for final tour dates of their breakthrough release. They plan to begin recording a follow-up shortly after the completion of that tour. Then, on the 19th of February of 1980, Bon Scott passed out while on a pub crawl in London. So a friend let him rest in the back of his Renault 5 overnight. The next morning, Scott was found dead, having choked on his own vomit. But the official cause listed on the death certificate was acute alcoholic poisoning. And he was classified as death by misadventure. The loss devastated the band, which considered breaking up. However, friends and family persuaded them to carry on, and they did, with the album Back in Black, released July 25th, 1980, marking a new start for the band with a new lead singer. After Bon Scott's funeral, the band immediately began auditions for a replacement frontman. At the advice of Mutt Lang, the boys brought in singer Brian Johnson, whose work with his band Geordie wasn't very rock and roll. Hard to believe Jordy didn't make it very far. It's good that they didn't. Jordy disbanded, and Johnson formed a second version of the group just to play for beer money. Coincidentally, it was Bond who had first told the other guys in ACDC about Brian having seen a Jordy gig in the northeast of England. He later told Angus that the singer and Jordy had done the best Little Richard impression he'd ever seen. He was rolling around on the stage screaming his head off. He said, Angus said it was rare that Bond ever raved about anything. What Bond didn't know was that after the show, Brian was rushed to hospital with appendicitis. He'd been screaming because he was in agony. And as we all know, appendicitis has led to some of the most electrifying rock performances ever. I believe Freddie Mercury at Live Aid had appendicitis. Oh, and what appendicitis it was. <laughs> so when he was told to go audition for ACDC, Johnson was in London to record a commercial jingle for Hoover Vacuums, which was only slightly more rock and roll. The new hot power compact from Hoover. It's a beautiful mover. The new compact does more than beats. It also cleans, it also sweeps, and brushes right to the edge, right to the edge. Changing a bag as easy as ABC. The new high power compact mover, it's a beautiful mover. If you listen carefully to that, you can actually hear his soul leaving his body. That's an incredible commercial. I kind of want a Hoover. Kind of, yeah. The audition with the band afterward went well. Johnson recalled that the guys were very welcoming and made him feel at home right away. After the band begrudgingly worked through the rest of their list of applicants in the following days, Johnson returned for a second audition. And on the 29th of March, just five weeks after Bon Scott died, Malcolm Young called Johnson to offer him the job. In Brian's first press interview as ACDC singer, he spoke candidly about his hopes and fears, saying, quote, I still don't know quite where I am. All I know is there's a stack of work to do, and the rest of the band have still got to find out about me. I'm still scared shitless, really. <laughs> Brian wasn't the only one feeling the pressure. 
As he explained, quote, the band weren't in the best financial state at the time because the album before, Highway to Hell, had cost so much money. In London, the new look ACDC worked quickly to finish writing the new album. Quote, when I went in, the guys had some titles for songs but no lyrics, Johnson says. A couple of titles came from the lyrics I wrote later on, but it's hard to remember because it's all a blur. They didn't even know what my lyrics were going to be like. Literally, they said, quote, can you write some lyrics for us? I said, I'll give it a shot. In late April, the band and producer Mutt Lang flew to Nassau in the Bahamas. Bahamas to record the new album at Compass Point Studios. As engineer Tony Platt explained, living and working on a remote island helped to, quote, bring everyone together. And he said that most of what you hear on the album, apart from the vocals, was recorded live off the floor, as they say, with the band being recorded as they played the songs live in the studio. Quote, on Highway to Hell, there were quite a few guitars overdubbed, but with the record, there was an intention to do it as live as possible. So all the songs were tracked with Angus, Malcolm, bass, and drums. On a few occasions, we may have dropped in a chord or so on a great take. The first song recorded set the tone for the album. The funky riff that Malcolm had been playing around with on the Highway to Hell tour had been worked into a crunching anthem that would become the album's title track. The lyrics were a statement of invincibility and a salute to Bond. Back in Black, said Malcolm, was ACDC remembering, quote, the good times they'd had with Bon. It was a theme they picked up on again with Have a Drink on Me, the song they'd cut as a demo with Bon on drums. The lyrics, whiskey, gin, and brandy, with a glass I'm pretty handy, were a drunken toast from Brian to his predecessor. Now, there were times, however, when Brian struggled with lyrics, notably on Hell's Bells, the epic rocker that ended up as the first track on the record. The riff, dubbed ominous by Malcolm and mystical by Angus, called for a heavy opening statement, but Brian just couldn't find the words until he experienced something almost divine as inspiration. As he told Dan Rather on Rather's Access show, The Big Interview. I remember about five songs in and I was going, gosh darn it, I think I've just run out of lyrics. It's because it was every day. And Mutt Lang, the producer, came down and he could see that I wasn't my chirpy self at breakfast. And he came down and he said, everything all right, Brian? And I said, yeah, I'm just struggling a little bit. Yeah. And it was a real bad day of the lakes, which I had never seen before, Dan. It was called a tropical storm. And the sky went black in this, you know, that thunder and and he went who's a rolling thunder and i went run thunder pouring rain coming on like a hurricane there's white lightning flashing i mean i literally was given a weather report i, I wasn't making <laughs> just all those factors just helped and of course when great things are happening so quickly you never realize dear it's so fabulous it just looks so easy and then and whenever you try to do it again, it never works. <laughs> Ratcheting up the pressure on Johnson even more was the fact that producer Lang focused particular attention on Johnson's vocals, demanding perfection out of each take. It was like, again, Brian, again, hold on, you sang that note too long so there's no room for a breath. He wouldn't let anything get past him. He had this thing where he didn't want people to listen to the album down the road and say, there's no way someone could sing that. They've dropped that in. Even the breaths had to be in the right place, and you can't knock a man for that, but he drove me nuts, said Johnson. We listen today to this album as an absolute classic that it is, but people often forget that it had to be created out of thin air, and that means creative decisions all along the way to make the album we know and love today. The song You Shook Me All Night Long is a great example. Johnson tells the story of its evolution with Angus and Malcolm jumping in to demonstrate with the guitars. I'd written the words and all that, and I went in to sing it and all that, and uh, the boys weren't in, and I was singing it. You know, she was a fast machine, she kept the motor clean she was the best damn woman that i ever seen and when i and what took him out he said you know brian there's too many words in it and i said oh what do you mean and he said i think it should be good like this she was a fast machine she 
bounce your head side to side. And then I did it like that, and then Mal heard it and stuck <laughs> me. He's going, What the f is this? It sounded kind of folky, didn't it, in a little way? Yeah. Folk rocky. Yeah, and at the same time, there was, it wasn't really. Uh, She's no, 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 no. He said, dear, back the old way. It rocks. At the end of their fifth week, the band had nine tracks in the can. They needed one more to finish the album. Malcolm and Angus wrote it in 15 minutes. Quote, I thought it was just going to be a boozy throwaway, Johnson admits. Mal came up with the title saying, Jono, we'll call it Rock and Roll Ain't Noise Pollution. I thought, great. There's a great one to effing rhyme with. I'll never forget the start of it. I went out to the recording booth and the intro starts and I hear in my ear, Brian, it's Mutt. Could you say something over that? Just talk. I was smoking a cigarette at the time, and you can hear it. I was going, yeah, all you middlemen. I just did this southern preacher thing. Honestly, it was one take. I never thought it was going to be on the record. The final ingredient added to the mix is also the first thing heard on the album, the now iconic tolling bell. As crucial to the presentation of the music as it has become, it was an afterthought. During the mixing process, Malcolm stepped outside, and he heard the church bells across the street chiming. He decided that they would make an interesting start to the album. Platt went out to record church bells, but they were always corrupted by flying birds or other noises, so the band solved the problem by having a bell forged, especially for the purpose, and perfectly tuned to ring out 13 times at the beginning of the album. According to rock journalist Joe S. Harrington, Back in Black was released at a time when heavy metal stood at a turning point between a decline and a revival, as most bands in the genre were playing slower tempos and longer solos, while ACDC and Van Halen adopted punk rock's high-energy implications and, quote, constricted their songs into more pop-oriented blasts. Harrington credited producer Lang for drawing ACDC further away from the blues-oriented rock of their previous albums and toward a more dynamic attack that concentrated and harmonized each element of the band. Quote, the guitars were compacted into a singular statement of rhythmic efficiency. The rhythm section provided the thunder horse overdrive and vocalist Johnson bellowed and brayed like the most unhinged practitioner of bluesy dynamics since vintage Robert Plant. The resulting music along with contemporaneous records by Motorhead and Ozzy helped revitalize and reintroduce metal to a younger generation of listeners. Quote, eventually resulting in the punk metal crossover personified by Metallica and others. Reviewing for Rolling Stone in 1980 David Frick regarded Back in Black as, quote, not only the best of ACDC's six American albums, but the apex of heavy metal art, the first LP since Led Zeppelin II that captures all the blood, sweat, and arrogance of the genre. The whole point of that album was to celebrate Bond's life, Johnson says. The boys had lost a great friend and a great singer, a pal. They'd gone through all their shit together. He wasn't just a singer in the band, he was their best pal. Forty years on, Back in Black is one of the biggest-selling rock albums of all time, with worldwide sales now at a staggering 50 million, and it literally saved ACDC's career. Slash even went so far as to say it saved rock and roll. Not only is it the greatest comeback album of all time, it's also arguably the greatest rock album ever made, and it becomes our latest inductee into the Drive Rock of Fame. For Mike Young, I'm Kelly Parker.